1: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest Fest for July 7th, 2016. The 7 Salty Almond, 6 Pointed Stars, 5 Secret Emails edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura, that, that person attempting to laugh in the distance Laughing wanly in the distance with Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Uh,
0: hello.
2: I was affectionately laughing at your singing. Uh,
1: not laughing, stone-faced in the studio with me um, is uh, resplendent John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Hello, John. Hi. Uh, I like the way you didn't even pretend that you could then have laughed. I like the way you you won't even like give me a nod. No, give me a, like, no, a, no, no, a, a no. I, 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 I. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> On this week's Gapfest, Hillary Clinton skirts disaster, but will the GOJ and FBI's decision not to prosecute her for her appalling email behavior still cost her? Then, is Donald Trump an anti Semite as well as a racist? We will solve the case of the six pointed star. Then, President Obama's nighttime habits are revealed in the New York Times. Do they reveal his strength as a politician or his weakness? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter and in Slate. Plus, the killing of Alton Sterling by Baton Rouge police, the killing of Philando Castile by police in Minnesota. Have we learned anything in the past year about the violence of police against African-Americans? Has anything changed? If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. And don't forget, next week, we have a live show here in Washington, D.C. at the Warner Theater Tickets still available. There's still a few tickets available at slate.com slash live. It's at 7 p.m. at the Warner Theater, slate.com slash live. It's going to be a really great show. It's right before the conventions. Um, we, We got a lot to talk about. We're going to have a lot to talk about. Look forward to seeing you there. In the late 1990s, it's sometimes seen that President Clinton... President Bill Clinton, that is, dodged catastrophe every day. He was not indicted over Whitewater, not indicted over Monica Lewinsky. He was impeached but not convicted for perjury. Perhaps his wife has some of that same that same voodoo in her soul. this week, she cleared the final obstacle between her and Donald Trump when the FBI's director James Comey, a Republican, announced that the FBI would recommend that recommend to the Justice Department that she and her aides not be indicted for their incredibly careless, stupid email handling. While she was at the State Department on Wednesday, Attorney General Loretta Lynch confirmed that DOJ would indeed not indict her or her aides, effectively closing the case, at least at DOJ headquarters. Emily, what did Comey and the FBI find and How vindicating or not was it for Clinton?
2: Comey and the FBI found that there were emails that were sent and received by uh, Hillary Clinton on her private email server that had top secret and secret and confidential information. So this contradicted her statement that nothing classified ever passed over this um, private email thing she had going on. And he basically said that he wasn't going to indict her because he didn't think she was intentionally trying to misuse the government secrets or spread information. He said it would be unprecedented for an official to be indicted merely for this um, extreme carelessness. And that was interesting and instantly got a lot of criticism from Clinton's political opponents, because the statute itself calls for gross negligence. It doesn't call for criminal intent. And so Comey was kind of reading into Congress's intent in passing this law, a higher standard for an indictment and for deciding that someone should be prosecuted for a crime. And that's pretty standard move for prosecutors to make in a situation like this. But it does contradict the text of the law itself in a way that was interesting. And then there was just this really unusual long description of all of the facts of a case in which the FBI had decided to recommend against a, pros- a prosecution. I couldn't remember ever listening to a law enforcement official give this kind of detail when you're deciding not to recommend in favor of charging with a crime. So that was a, I thought, fascinating window into the FBI's own process. It was not good for Hillary Clinton because it provided all kinds of details about how she was essentially misusing this email server and, you know, makes her seem paranoid and, um, high-handed, which we already knew. But now we have the, the facts that show that know, she really was doing things she wasn't supposed to do. Now, it also seemed like there was really no harm, no, no harm. So then the question is, is it no harm, no foul?
1: Emily, just on this intent question, she certainly seems to have been grossly negligent in how she handled this information. I doubt she intended to use this to share classified information. She certainly intended to use this to skirt government technology policies and intended to use it to skirt, say, FOIA she she was she there was a lot of intent in yeah. in in what she was doing, even <laughs> right. if it wasn't necessarily intent right. to reveal classified information
2: right and that's why Comey's laying out all of these facts then raises these questions why hold the government in pro, in deciding a prosecutor to this higher standard. Why shouldn't, if the statute says gross negligence and he made a case for gross negligence, then why not indict? And the reason is that prosecutors have an enormous amount of discretion. Now, Comey himself isn't a prosecutor. The prosecutorial discretion part is still up to the Department of Justice. But essentially, he was talking about a judgment call and substituting his own ideas and, um, and I suppose the rest of the FBIs and maybe DOJ I mean, well, DOJ, like I said, was separate, but you can imagine the Justice Department will go along with this idea that there is this higher standard of criminal intent. That is tricky. I really think the only way to understand this is that from what we know, the actual confidential and top secret information that got shared was not actually the kind of state secret that could have done damage to the government. And so there's this funny way, I think, in which what's really at issue here is that the impact of what she did was um negligible in terms of actually hurting the country and somehow that standard has been imputed into this gross negligence idea
0: do we really know that what she had was the confidential stuff that was marked confidential and that was confidential at the time which was one of the disclosures was inconsequential because he said some of it was at the well, highest levels. Positive. Well,
1: there's a, there's an interesting Fred Kaplan piece about this, where Fred makes a pretty yes. good case saying that this is essentially about drone strikes, CIA drone strikes, which were, um, which were classified as, I, I guess, confidential or secret, even though the same strikes being carried out by DOD were not, um, and that it and, and they've, they've been, been reported, reported in the media. The news. So that's most of it. And then the, that the only that's one that's what that, he assumes is most well, of it. Well. I, I didn't understand. Well, no, but I didn't understand. But then he said the other one is that the, a communication about the president of Malawi, which it's hard to imagine. that it, I've been to Malawi. It's a great country, but it's hard to imagine communication I don't the communication about the president of Malawi could be. I don't think we know. I didn't understand how he knew that, how, how Fred knew that. I don't think we know. Anyway, I don't think we know. So here
2: we that was reported not just by Fred, right? The New York Times had the same set of yeah, assumptions. Yeah, but there are assumptions. Yes, I agree, John, that if you read There are assumptions. Yes, they're
0: guesses. Yes, I agree. So... Uh,
2: they seemed like high, like well-educated guesses, but guesses nonetheless.
0: I think to your point, David, the difference between intents in the, the intent that I think the statute goes to is whether you had an intent to specific intent specifically uh, directed at this uh, at this classified stuff. The intent that she had that you described, which was to get around the system, uh, which was to protect her privacy. She had super intent on that, but it was right. in a separate channel. Right. I, uh, but can we just – the real damage here is that he completely shredded a half a dozen or more claims that Hillary Clinton has made in this political campaign about her server. She said she didn't send anything that was classified in any form. He said that wasn't true. There were over 100 such items. Regardless of what they were about, they were classified. Comey said she should have known that and everybody participating in it should have known it, whether it had the markings or not on that. He said that they, And a
2: few of them did have the markers right, too. Right,
0: right. So she said that in several interviews, including one with me, she said, you know, we wouldn't have even bumped up against anything that would even be remotely considered problematic because we, and particularly she named Jake Sullivan, knew exactly how to handle this kind of information. Comey said, no, that wasn't true. They were extremely careless about how to handle this information. The security of the server was basically totally open. Less secure than Gmail, less secure than any of the private servers she might have used or private systems she might have used if she hadn't created her own special server. He described an extremely complicated system of multiple servers and multiple devices, which contradicts her claim that this was about convenience, a contradiction that had already been exposed by the State Department's inspector general. which surfaced an email in which she's talking about her privacy and not her convenience. Of course, privacy makes perfect sense if you're a public figure like her. The only problem is that she has claimed publicly that this whole rigmarole was created out of convenience. So there's that contradiction. Her campaign said that her her lawyers read every single email that they deleted. Comey said, no, that's not true. They basically searched through the emails with some keywords to find anything that might be work-related, sent those things that were work-related to the State Department and then deleted everything else. The bias there being co- the total reverse of the way the system is supposed to work. The bias is supposed to be on retention because these are people that are employed by the voters and therefore everything they do should be subject to some kind of review and should be captured first and then weeded out. The, uh, she turned that totally upside down and on its head. She said they deleted no work emails. He said there were plenty of work emails that were deleted, some of which they could recover after this incredibly laborious time time-consuming, painstaking, and expensive process of, of trying to recover them from her servers that her lawyers tried to wipe. So there were emails there that were, um, that were work-related that she didn't turn over, which is another contradiction of something that she said repeatedly. Uh, and we know from the inspector general that, that despite the fact that the Clinton campaign said that she operated within the spirit and the letter of the law, that she did not operate within the spirit and the letter of the law. That's a lot of stuff, not just about stuff that happened when she was first brought into the office, but contradiction
1: of repeated claims she's made in the course of this campaign. Do you think, John, as a political matter, that this is a pulled muscle or is it an amputation? Like, is this a permanent injury to her or is this just a this is a temporary thing or she she bears a hit and but ultimately she recovers? I think normally it would be a real blow, but
0: she's running against a candidate who has created new excellence in saying things that either that that contradicting himself or saying things that are factually inaccurate and easily verifiably factually inaccurate you know she's running against somebody who has his own trust issues and what it comes down to for voters is which of the a did the distrust matter to you as a voter and b the two kinds of trust are a what do you do when no one's looking which is to say what do you do when nobody's looking and you set up your own server and b what do you do when everyone's looking and you have to Decide whether the person is telling you the truth or not she um I, whether it has a long term long term uh, damage, who knows because she's we are in this crazy race. if she were running
1: against Marco Rubio, it would have a huge damage Emily, do you think uh, as the general consensus seems to be that the Republicans botched this response because they they focused on the non indictment rather than focusing on the 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 incredible findings that Comey had and that by by making by getting indignant at Comey and the FBI and the AG, they missed the opportunity to really pound on on what Comey did say. And also that Trump, of course, distracted everybody with his usual his usual mishegas,
0: which just to give people uh, uh, the usual mishegas included saying that Saddam Hussein, though he was a bad guy, was good at killing terrorists, Mm -hmm. which is also factually inaccurate. He supported terrorists.
2: Yes, I did think they botched the response. The obvious line was that Comey thoroughly discredited Hillary Clinton and to lay out the brief that John just laid out, um, which shows her saying things that turned out to be wrong, could otherwise be characterized as lying. It seemed like that was such an obvious, huge gift that Comey gave them. And so then, to turn this into the system is rigged because she's not being indicted, I it just seemed like a real lost opportunity to me.
1: How should she spin this, John? Should she spin this as victory? Should she say nothing? <laughs> should she should she quietly apologize and well, move on? Keep they moving? tried to spin. You know, the the several times they said well, the, the issue
0: has been resolved and she apologizes. So that's obviously silly. The issue hasn't been resolved. I mean, the illegal the, the issue has been resolved. But the central issue for voters who don't know, like, statute schmatchute is what the candidate is telling me about the way they behaved in a situation that's not too terribly different from the kinds of situations we all expect them to encounter as president where they telling me the truth. That's not been resolved. I think the only way it gets resolved is through answering the questions the problem is the questions are unanswerable because the statements were made and then they were contradicted by not by some republican hack but by the inspector general of the state department and the director of the fbi like and the, the director of the fbi who you are whose authority you are validating by saying the issue has been resolved in other words he has the authority and we believe in that authority when we want it to work for us, which is to say nothing to see here, issue resolved, let's move on. You can't then say, oh, well, all the other stuff he said was lacks value and weight. It just like, so I I think the way she gets around it is just talks about stuff that people, that, that voters, she's been talking about college education and college costs this week. And you talk about Donald Trump and you talk about the things people care about in their, in their daily lives and hope that, it just kind of, you can grind it out through to November, I guess.
2: I think that's right. I mean, the other thing I keep th- balking over is that one tries to think, okay, well, so when she said all those things, we were super careful, no classified information, blah, blah. Was she just deliberately lying and obfuscating? Or did she just imagine... That or Did she not really know? And did she just imagine that she wasn't ever going to get caught in that lie because they would never investigate this thoroughly? None of those are appetizing <laughs> options, right? It's really hard to know what to make of those statements she made that, that doesn't seem pretty damning.
1: What is her explanation? What What did they say they were doing with the classified stuff? Because obviously she was clearly going to get lots of classified material, and so they made a plan that we don't want to want to get the classified material here. So what did they do? They, it's just coming she to her said, on paper?
0: Right. It came to her on paper. There was an email that was found in one of the investigations in which she asked Jake Sullivan to basically strip the headers and strip the classifying information, which she defended herself by saying, don't misinterpret that email, which seems to be basically her giving... Guidance on how to get around the classification and, and suggests a facility with getting around the classification that's really well practiced, right? Was, she, she wasn't uh, unfamiliar with it as she was unfamiliar with so many other things, be, uh, which we know from the emails. I mean, you know, unfamiliar with just technological things. She seemed pretty f- facile at this. So her argument was, no, I, would, I wasn't doing that. I was trying to get the actual information, you know, sometimes real useful information, which she needs to do her job, is kind of laced within stuff that is either classified or is like quote-unquote classified, the drone stuff being a good example. It's classified or it has some level of classification, but it's appearing in the New York Times. So her argument was what I was asking him to do is is send me the useful stuff in this report and the not classified stuff, and the classified stuff was done through the normal – like it was either on paper or verbal or –
1: I mean, my, isn't – my suspicion is that they really intended to keep the classified stuff away from the server. They knew enough to do that. And that just you slip up, people right. send stuff. There's a very small – I mean, 100 emails is a pretty small number when you think about how much classified material much she must see. Right, um, And they just slipped up occasionally. But th- that was the intent. The, then the, what the, do the, you do
2: the, about the fact that she was obviously – I mean, yes, she has privacy concerns. She has reason to have privacy concerns. But she was avoiding FOIA. she was I oh
1: it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's just, a total disgrace. Okay. It's a complete disgrace. it's a horror yeah. and and the security, the absence of security, oh and God. the fact that they that they were hackable it's it's shocking. and I, the just, fact she was using it in countries. How did
0: Comey put it? Yeah. like all uh, over the world well, all over the world, including countries that were actively I'm trying sure in China, into... I'm sure
1: in China, they were just like, thank you. <laughs>
0: This gift you brought
1: to us. <laughs> exactly. Um, we love right. we love your black. When you Berry, said, well, it, Secretary you know, she
2: may not have been um you know, her email may not have been accessed by a hostile actor. You start thinking like, well, how could it have not been? How lucky
0: Well, that's what he yeah, yeah. And he said we wouldn't know even if it were. And Adam Schiff, uh, on the on Face the Nation on Sunday, basically, that the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee said it probably was, you know, it probably was hacked based on what we know. I mean, if the Russians were hacking into the DNC To get the information the DNC had, they weren't going to be like – that sounds – if they've gotten to that, you're pretty sure
1: that there are higher targets on the list, which would have included the Secretary of State. Let's close on this. The most interesting thing I read about this this week was Glenn Greenwald's column. Yeah, that was interesting. Um, It it was a very scathing, brilliant column arguing – essentially that it was rich it is really rich for hillary clinton to be left alone when this administration has been absolutely ruthless and vicious about enforcing secrecy provisions for the little people and greenwald points out i think with just complete accuracy that had a regular state department staffer set up a private server and stored classified emails <laughs> on that private server they would be in they would be doing hard time they would be in a federal prison somewhere no doubt they would have uh, the conclusion that we should make About this, the conclusion that I would make is not necessarily that Hillary Clinton should have gone to jail. It's that there is a problem with how we're treating secrecy in this uh, in this administration, in the city, and it's full of hypocrisy. And Greenwald says, like the hypocrisy is, we're protecting powerful people. Who do things, um, but in general, I think it's a it's a mess. What, what, Emily, what 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 do you think about this?
2: Yes, I thought it was a really compelling calm. He brought up Chelsea Manning, who leaked to um, WikiLeaks and is doing a lot of hard time. And you know, look, those were a lot of real secrets that got revealed. And so, I think if you don't think Clinton's use of this email server was a big deal, and this is Fred Kaplan's position, you're looking at the effect that it actually had. It appears that she sort of skated through this. I mean, you know, no great state secret, as far as we know, did escape through this email. And so, you know, it's like, okay, nothing to look at. Let's not pay attention here. But she broke all these rules and she's being held to, uh, you know, she's getting away with it in a way that um, other people, including Chelsea Manning, obviously did not.
0: And also just... There is the like stuff she said in real time in the campaign that's not turned out to be true. All of the things that are being displayed in a campaign are not useful in evaluating whether whether and how they're going to behave as a president. But some of the things are. And so there's not only the things that turn out to be, not be true that she said out loud, but there is the troubling pattern over time about this kind of skating the rules and – creating it and feeling like different rules apply to you
2: and the self-inflicted wound oh it's so frustrating like watching someone just take herself down for no good reason for what so that like she could write emails about chelsea's wedding and her own yoga classes without worrying about foia i just it it's there's something so frustrating about that part of it
1: this episode of the gap fest is sponsored by sap first the bad news That's SAP Business AI. This week in the Hieronymus Bosch-like spectacle that is the Donald Trump campaign, we had Donald Trump, as previously mentioned, praising Saddam Hussein. But then we also had this crazy scandal erupting over the tweeting of an image depicting corrupt Hillary Clinton That image, which indicated that she was uh, financially untrustworthy and and greedy, contained a six-pointed red star. Further indignant investigation revealed that that image had originated with a white supremacist anti-Semitic Twitter user. Some slash many people turned up their outrage machine to the full 11 to indict Trump for anti-Semitism. So what part of the scandal did I not explain or miss? John, well you
2: didn't put there that any key the key element. I think you left out a key element of the visual, which is that the red the, the six-pointed star, which is the star of David, a Jewish star, was on top of a pile of money, which is a stereotype about Jews, their greed, their, you know, banking history. I think that's key to seeing the anti-Semitism there.
1: Yeah. Okay, John, any anything else I missed? You've accurately, I think, conveyed the state of things. Okay. So I think there are two issues here. The first is, is this image alone anti-Semitic? And then the second is, is the origin of it, like the fact of where it came from, the problem to me, like, who cares that there's a star? J- Hillary Clinton is not Jewish. She's not a Jewish candidate a- And absent, you know, a- independent of where this where it turned out to come from. It has many meanings of the world. And it just seemed to me, the, the, the outrage about this as subtext when you consider what the obvious actual text of Donald Trump is about Mexicans, about Muslims, about uh, African-Americans in crime, like the the, the kind of level of, of vitriol that rose instantly over that thing uh, seemed to me really out of whack, out of proportion with what the – the misdeed is
2: and then when you learned that it came from a white supremacist you know twitter user and had been on white supremacist site did that change your sense of it or and what about the pile of money did you not care about that either
1: I don't care. I don't so what? What do you mean about the pile of money? Hillary Clinton is somebody who buck rakes like crazy from Goldman Sachs and like it's perfectly legitimate to criticize her for taking tons of money for the Clinton Foundation for herself and a pile of money is a good representation of it and a, and a star is a perfectly fine image and and it's like the fact that it comes from an of an from an anti-semitic, you know, dirt bag is a problem because that means that the Trump campaign is basically getting their information there. But in itself, like before that we knew that part of it, it just doesn't seem – like it doesn't seem relevant. She's not Jewish. It doesn't – she's not –
2: Wow, I feel like you're having a hyper-rational response to this, which I have to say I did not have – I am generally not in favor of going to look for anti-Semitism in America because I don't think it's... And
1: now she says, and now goes to look for Exactly. I don't think it's
2: our country's biggest problem. So I'm there that far with you. I'm sort of was reluctant to see this here. But I gotta say, like, you know, you see a Jewish star on top of a lot of money. I I think that the stereotypes that, um, that this image was playing into are right there at the surface there it's not very hard to make those connections and the idea that okay because Hillary herself isn't Jewish and Trump's campaign purportedly intended this to have a different message about her corruption and that sort of erases all of the history that these noxious stereotypes tap into that seems crazy to me like I feel like when you when you um wrap Jewish images up in greed and dollar signs, you were tapping right into this incredibly virulent stereotype that has caused an enormous amount of harm to the Jewish people. And so I did take umbrage.
1: You take umbrage in, even independent of where you thought the origin was. Well, it's hard for me indep- to say
2: because when I learned about it, we, there was an argument going on, like, where did this come from? You know, did they find it themselves? But to me, it's I was so unsurprised, given Trump's history of following some of these alt-right or white supremacist or white genocide people on Twitter and using things that they had tweeted out in other contexts. I assumed, th- I mean, I was, it, it, that seemed so typical that it was going to have that origin. And so it was all just like of a piece to me. I didn't really experience it separately.
0: Also, is, uh, to use the stereotypes associated with one race or religion on somebody who's not of that race or religion is a thing that's done, even if they're not. I mean, that's a way to... Smear her. Uh, to, 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 right, to smear well, her. I mean, so the fact that she isn't one, that I think that is hyper-rationalism, although I generally... Well, associate maybe, myself you know, as with a, your
1: uh... you know as a as a jew i looked at that before i honestly it took me several days for me to understand what people i literally did not understand why people were upset it took me days <laughs> to actually oh, understand really? I, so to i comprehend you, you I honestly your didn't. walls
2: and dollar signs i mean come on david like that's
1: she's not jewish so
0: what? right and she... that is that's not i mean if she was in blackface you would think well she's not an african-american
2: Right, or if um, she was being when shot. When they did yeah. uh, so but remember
0: it, that was done with Joe Lieberman in his Senate race. Somebody uh, did a like a uh, I don't know a Photoshop and had him in blackface. But I guess I, do, I guess
1: I don't think that that star. It's a that star. You know, as a yellow star on someone's you know on an armband. I get that as a as a uh, a blue star that the blues is the blue star that is used on the flag of Israel, right? I see it, but it's like a re- it's like a random red six pointed star. I see six pointed stars like all around the world. I think and they- and the the other part of it is that it doesn't. Donald Trump does seem to me to be a bigot who is anti Muslim. He's anti black. He's anti Hispanic and racist in all those ways. He actually doesn't read to me as anti Semitic. No, like, but Josh Marshall has really and, that, good... and so. Right. Josh Marshall, go ahead.
2: Well, he had a really good line on this. He talked about Trump's attitude toward Jews as this kind of, to me, warped philo-Semitism, where you pretend you have this great affection, right? Years ago, Trump said something about how he wanted— People with the yarmulkes to be managing his money, and he intended that one imagines as a compliment, like, "Oh, good Jews, they're so good at money." But like, Jews being good at money has caused a lot of damage in throughout history, and continues to. And so, that kind of you know supposedly positive stereotype is is a big problem, and it doesn't make it
1: is not a big problem. Yes, it is it's not a big. It, it is a is big not. problem. It's a little problem. Fine. it's a in little world, problem. It is
2: uh, g- given lots of tiny, other problems. It's a tiny, tiny little
1: problem. Philosemitism, the- which associates Jews. With with you know earning money and controlling the media is a really like in a in a in a in a is a very small problem compared to so everything else that Donald Trump represents.
2: Well, I look. I mean, I agree with you when we and have it's the Jewish
1: our... and that the Jews in the media who like like me and you, Emily, who are who get so worked up over this w- about this, which is as I would say is like it's not that there's nothing to it because the origins are incredibly troubling. It's that. It's that it's so small compared to everything else that he does.
2: Yeah. But it's Um, also of a piece with everything else, right? Well
1: that's the other thing is
2: it's all of these groups. He tarnishes people, he traffics in stereotypes and group characterizations, and Jews happen to be a group for whom there are both positive and negative stereotypes. I don't know. To me, it's all cringeworthy and problematic. And I don't think it's the teeniest, tiniest problem when you see it as part of this tapestry of Trump's bigotry.
0: That's the challenge is that there are, you know, there was the slow, let's, okay, let's step back and look at the way other Republicans and people in the party re- see this. There was this slow, clumsy non response to uh, the, uh, when Jake Tapper asked him about white supremacists and, uh, and and David Duke. There is the retweeting of various white supremacists at various different times. There's the white supremacist who was a delegate on in California. Like in in their single you know, if there were one of them, fine. But the fact that there are so many of them is a problem if for no other reason than every other Republican thinks, geez, he's he's hanging out in these quarters that you. Sh- this is not a neighborhood you should be in. You. It should not be an issue that you are that you are retweeting or using imagery from uh, white supremacists because you're not even near that. Not because it's politically incorrect, but because you find that kind of behavior and people who talk like that to be totally reprehensible and contrary to what you believe in your bones. Right. It's like you don't. You're not like watching pornography with your kids. It's so therefore it's <laughs> unlikely that anything that from a pornographic website is going to get passed on because it just ain't I something bet you do. Trump
1: wants porn with his kids. So
0: so that's the thing that makes politicians in his in his party and and people just like f- shocked by uh, by this. And then I think the other thing that is um, interesting to watch is that on Wednesday night he defended the, the tweet said he shouldn't have deleted it uh, and said this was all like you know but like media and Democrats attacking him what's interesting there is that Republicans another thing that worries that worries them is that basically given the Clinton email scandal and all the legitimate questions raised by it even if he felt put upon by the press and his critics on this issue that he should have basically not talked about it it's like it doesn't matter. You're winning the news cycles repeatedly when officials are calling out Hillary Clinton for her not telling the truth. And so yet he cannot resist, and that cannot resist the feeling about personal slights is a lack of control, and it's been repeated. And the question is, what what does that look like when he's president? What does that look like when there are a lot of more important things to deal with? Is his inability to to let some of these slights pass – what, like, what will that mean? What's curious about Donald Trump is there are a lot of, I mean, he gets a lot of slights. People say a lot of mean things about him. Some he chooses to defend well past the point where he should, and some he doesn't, you know, don't bother him at all. And I that's a, I don't know what the triggering mechanism is.
2: Me neither, but I have to say, I find it totally fascinating. So I was like fast forwarding through that endless speech on Wednesday night, and it's like your grumpy grandpa having to share with you every single way in which he's been aggrieved during the week, right? I mean, it reminds me of myself when I feel like I'm under attack and I have to, like, vent at the end of the day to my poor husband. Like, and then this unfair thing happened, and this person... And, you know, the idea that someone would use a huge crowd and a television audience to kind of deal with their own psychology of like working out how someone insulted them in ways that, you know, your your best friend maybe or your yeah, your spouse has to hear that stuff, but the rest of the world really doesn't. It's so undignified and yet he's obsessed with it.
1: I just want to go back to to Josh Marshall's piece uh, Emily, you you touched on it. I thought it was a really great piece for a bunch of reasons and what you you talked about the phylo-Semitic part of it. I thought Josh's real insight was he he was saying that Trump essentially has no belief system his, himself, that he hones in, he responds to affirmation. And this is a salesman psychology that salesmen are always looking for what is it that's moving the person they're trying to sell to? What is it the audience that you have is responding to? And it becomes a reinforcing cycle because you see the audience responding to something so you double down on it. And what has happened to Trump is that he saw, he he read that his audience res, was responding to Anger and sort of his the more bigoted, racist, rageful parts of it, and he took on more of that. And I don't actually think it represents any actual belief system in, on his part. I think it is that where where he saw opportunity because people that that is where the greatest emotional response was coming. And in a way, it's much more dangerous than an actual belief system.
2: It's also a really good explanation for why he can't broaden his appeal because if the pe- if the emotional response that he craves is coming from his most ardent supporters and those people. Are mixed up with the alt right, and you know are more on the fringe. Then it becomes very difficult to moderate and stick to your, you know, boring old teleprompter talking points.
1: Can we talk for one second about this phrase, the alt right? Which I it, it irritates me because I always associate alt with like, oh, indie, you know, that great band with tattoos. And alt right just means like just some racist dirt bags who are good on Twitter. Okay. All right. Yeah. Just said that. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have nothing just else. Yeah, a no.
2: through the heart of that
1: phrase. Okay. Last bit on this to just to maybe preview next week. It's a slightly different subject. In his crazy speech on Wednesday night, Trump did tease Newt Gingrich as his possible veep. Should we take anything I, from that? He, he said that Newt would be would do great in the debates. Yeah. Yeah. So I have both a general and a specific
0: aversion to the parlor game, which Trump is using and successfully had Bob Corker out with him on the stump Newt Gingrich. He went to go meet with Mike Pence. He's using, uh, one of the weaknesses in our coverage of these campaigns, which is the endless obsession with the players and who might be veep and who might not be veep. So I think what's interesting is what it tells us about him. And one, one thing that it does that, 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 Having said all of that high horse crap, one thing that is interesting, though, about the people who are on the list and who are taking themselves off the list is I had a conversation with somebody who's who was talking to one of the people who was kind of on the list, was thinking about was thinking about being on the list if you look at the two categories, there are those politicians who have future ambitions in the party and electoral politics. So that would be Mike Pence, Indiana governor, Tom Cotton, senator from Arkansas, Corker from Tennessee, senator Joni Ernst from Iowa. All those people want to continue on in the party. They have all taken themselves off the list that they were maybe on. Gingrich and, and Christie are kind of done. Ed O'Keefe made this point from The Washington Post. Made this. They are – their careers have hit a ceiling and they will continue to have – that's fine. They'll give speeches. Life is not over for them, but they are not planning to have a future. And so hitching themselves to Donald Trump has less risk associated with it. But the person who was advising one of these possible candidates was explaining something to, or reminding me of something that I've forgotten, which is when you sign up for a campaign, usually what happens is there's an apparatus to take care of the vice president. And the Trump campaign has been successful in being a non-traditional campaign, but there are certain things that that you kind of still have to do and one of them is take care of your vice president and the reason you do that is that the vice president like can't be out there just hanging out on their own off message not advise not knowing what the candidates doing because there aren't a lot of opportunities for the candidate and the vice president to talk they almost never do during a campaign. So anybody who signs up to be the number two for Donald Trump will face all the challenges we're aware of, but we'll have none of the support system. To keep them okay, which means if they are worried about their own political viability after the race is over, there are more opportunities where they're going to think, yeesh, I- I'm going to be out there in the whistling wind of chance will be howling around me. And I'm not going to have a backup system uh, because the campaign is basically all about Donald Trump and is also just basically short-staffed and non-traditional. So I'm going to be – I'm not going to have a very good like support system, and that's going to make it even more chaotic. And – That, for me, is really explained why those who are ambitious are not going to sign up. But I think Trump could also pick, you know, there might be a couple of military figures that he could pick. And that we're making the parallel with with Wallace in 68, who picked uh, Curtis LeMay as his number two. Um, Interesting. And uh, I think it's going to be fascinating about what it tells us about Donald Trump and also what it means for the next several months
1: of the two of them trying to kind of stay on the same page. Oh, my God. What a fun job. The line will be long. Trump picks the ghost of Curtis LeMay. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com. And use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. A New York Times story fascinated students of politics and presidents this week. The story detailed President Obama's nighttime routine. It seems that early in his presidency... Obama would, after having dinner with his family, he would play pool with Sam Cass, who was one of the White House um, chefs and a family friend. And then he'd put his daughters to bed and then he might do some work. Now that his daughters have grown up, Cass is gone. He has a routine or claims, apparently, the story claims he has a routine where he holds up in the treaty room, reads documents, watches ESPN, plays words with friends and snacks on seven lightly salted almonds not six and not eight but seven and then goes to bed quite late he doesn't appear to be hanging out much with Michelle in this in these evenings not with his kids he doesn't appear to be in the way that Bill Clinton was constantly on the phone with people so john you are you are the world's greatest living student of both presidents and and uh, how, and time spending and life hacking. Yeah. And what did this story tell you about President Obama? What did you learn from it that you that you didn't know? One, the first thing that hit me is I
0: just saw a um, talk by Charles Duhigg about productivity and and why people succeed and how they exceed, succeed. And he talked about the cognitive space you need uh, where you can do deep thinking. And that everybody who is successful in a world of constant attention attacks finds a time where they can do deep thinking. And we know from study after study that focused work allows us to be the most creative and most productive and productive not in terms of really being able to solve or create something great. So this that's that was the first reaction I had, which is Bill Clinton used to set aside time let's let's avoid the let's avoid the obligatory jokes used to have on his calendar thinking time like blocks of time where people weren't interrupting him so he could work on his on whatever project it was that was most important to him so that felt like that's what this was the other thing too is that when you are president your every moment is being stolen from you 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 can't take a walk you can't like peer out a window Without either interruption or being late for the next event, your day is spent in a vice all day long, like just thousands of like little niggling little things constantly. And then there's the huge stuff that comes. No decision is small when it gets to the president. And so there's a lot on your mind Which makes each individual interruption more irritating because let's say you're trying to focus on a big decision you have to make, but you're being like suddenly you're now having to like stand out with the the Denver Broncos and hold up a jersey and celebrate their Super Bowl win or you've got to, you know, go pardon a turkey. And um, so it, it doesn't surprise me at all that. He or any president would want to. This is why, like the golf and the brush clearing and all of that stuff, we should force presidents to do that, mm-hmm. not criticize them for going off to Crawford or for. Going to play golf, it's ridiculous given what their days are like and what we demand from them in the pantomimes of the office, which is to say lots of vigorous action in response to things that don't have an immediate vigorous action response, but we demand it anyway. And so um, given all of the psychological and physical contortions we require from presidents, the, the finding a sanctuary in the day makes sense. And in the evening when nobody's around and nobody's there to interrupt you and everybody's gone to bed. That, of course, must feel like a blessed time where you just can regain some sense of yourself and actually maybe get some some work done. I don't see how he does, though, on on so little sleep. The jobs, I would just think you'd need more. I think you'd need like bush-level sleep, eight hours a day constantly just to stay
1: on focus. The part I didn't understand is how you could watch ESPN for hours and hours every night. But he's not ESPN really best watching
2: it. It sounded like it was in on the background unless there was like a really good game going on.
1: I guess that's true. My favorite detail is that he works in the treaty room under a picture of uh, Ulysses S. Grant. Your, your favorite my president. My favorite American. Yeah. So that seemed good.
2: I think it's just really important for people to have a part of the day that they get to spend the way they want to spend. So I don't care what the president's doing i agree with john that there should be this zone that is personal and and has just like relaxation in it and my favorite details was that he was playing words with friends and it's like goofing off a little just having some kind of light brain activity that feels like it's not accomplishing anything or i guess a game like that you are sort of accomplishing something but it's meaningless
1: there was an article in Vanity fair a couple of years ago which are resolute intern Kevin pointed us to, which also point, it it took some of the same data set around President Obama and his, what he likes to do at leisure and and spun it very differently. It took the case that his lack of socializing, his non-Clintonian quality of Clinton, who always wanted social input and social interaction, and that that was that kind of behavior, while pathological, also served to lubricate his political life. And that Obama, by being so interior at heart, not cultivating these relationships with political allies or enemies, had missed an opportunity and that this was a a problem for him.
2: This is so tedious to me because essentially it's blaming Obama for recharging by himself, which is an introvert quality. And sure, maybe it'd be – I mean uh, they're so – such a refrain in Washington that if he was better at glad handing, somehow everything would be different. But it seems to me that if there is an extreme pathological uh, version of this on the other side, it was Bill Clinton and his extreme extrovert self that he could never turn
1: off.
0: But also it's, as Bill Clinton would say, it's false choice. You can be a great glad-handing politician who does all the stuff you need to do in politics during the day and still require the recharging and the contemplative time uh, later at night. As Duhigg points out, that's how successful people do it. And Bill Clinton's requirement that he have that alone time to think was not in contradiction or contravention or any other word I can come up with of his more glad-handing side. Obama's does have a does have a problem with lacking the political instinct that would come as Chuck Schumer put it from like climbing the greasy pole of politics. Like if you've done it your whole career, you have a kind of second nature sense, which isn't which isn't so much the mis the misunderstanding about glad handing is that it's all about like go have drinks and and sit down and have um you know dinner with them. What the glad handing instinct gives you is a sense of people's needs, both to be pressured, to be scratched, to be loved, to be all those little buttons. You know how to push those buttons, and you don't have to go do them yourself a lot of time. A lot of time, you just send to some minion and say, like, go, oh, you know, go make sure that so-and-so is okay. There's a great memo that James Baker wrote during the 1976 fight between Ford and Reagan in which he outlines the delegate. Uh, sucking up effort that was required because there were a number of uncommitted delegates who were up in the air about which of the two candidates they were going to go to. And he says basically in the memo, the the thing that politicians hate is to not know what's going on and to not feel loved. So he created this regimen of just constant affirmation and affection. Ford didn't have to do any of that stuff. It was all being done for him. And that's the thing that a politician – that a person who's been in politics a long time knows how to do. That's a totally separate issue from whether you have this contemplative time. Uh, so I think uh, having not read the Vanity Fair piece, I'm not maybe being fair to it. But, uh, but I think these two things are kind of totally separate.
1: My One thing I was struck by as I read the story is that I actually didn't believe that this was a – this was how President Obama spent most of his evenings.
2: You don't believe in those seven lightly salted almonds? They're I think so. abstemious. I think this, this, My God. This, Where's the this represents in the this
1: represents one form of evening that he spends. That, that, that he doesn't do this every evening. That he is probably with his wife more than this suggests. He is with his wife. I felt like that this was a tar- trying to prov- trying to universalize something, which is a thing that he does. You know, like a couple times a week uh, when there's a good game on. And John, why are you not? I think you're right. Well, and we may be the ones making the mistake here, which is like,
0: you know, this is what he does some number of nights and it's a routine, you know, like I like to think I work out in the morning. I probably do it only like once or twice a week. Right. So, but to the extent it's a routine in the morning, the rest of the days are are defined by like happenstance. So it's a routine, like what defines a routine, I guess, is what I'm
1: saying. I I mean, when I think like if someone said, oh, I'm going to write about David Plotz's nighttime routine, I would say, oh, yeah, you know, sure. We have uh, dinner and hang out, watch some TV, kids to bed, Hannah and I, you know, sit on the couch and work and then, uh, uh, you know, watch an HBO show or something. But that actually happens once a week. It doesn't happen six nights a week. And I was also struck and you you know everyone's marriage is an, is a, is a, is a foreign country, so you never should make assumptions about anyone else's marriage or what it means. Um, but it was weird to me how little Michelle Obama was in the story. Like that, that also rung false to me because I, my sense is that they are a couple that is a very much a married couple. And the, the fact that she, that as portrayed, they have dinner, but then they're not together and then she goes to bed early. Well, this whole um, thing of
2: going to bed separately, was, this is a real dividing line between couples, I think. Because I personally cannot imagine that. It would change everything about my evenings and my So marriage. with
1: you. Totally with Wait, you. Wait, what?
2: Yeah, Hannah, for right. I tell you, I, I, I
1: always time. go to bed with Hannah, right. like 90, 95 percent But you and Ann go time.
2: to bed at different times, right, John?
0: Totally, yeah, yeah. For so work, I, sometimes yeah. I have to go to bed earlier, and then but then also I always have, but then maybe that's. I mean, it's been this way since college that that I stay up and do work. That's almost always the way. That's interesting. You go to bed at the same time, always fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Does that you, mean you, go to guys, bed and Emily? read, or the lights are out at the same time? No, the lights both, are out usually. at the
2: same time. Both. It means wow. both. Yeah.
0: yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. I wonder if that's a. I wonder if that's Do a. You get up divine. at the same time.
1: No, I'm always up earlier. So basically, you're saying she's a slug of bed. She's a lazy. she no, she's no,
2: healthier. That's the answer. She's, to she's, no,
1: she's that healthy. She's lazy. Why are you saying that she's lazy? Why would you say That's that, John? That's ridiculous. She's much healthier. Stop it. She's far healthier. That is so weird. Hannah and I, I would, ninety-five percent of the time, sleep at the same time, read at the same time, sleep at the same time, wake up at the same time.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
2: Right, I so like I really do think great. this is a dividing line. Someone should do a whole story about this. Well, I guess the it. question is, yeah, and how
0: big are the how big are the two shares of the pie? Like, right. am I in the vast minority, or um, a big great? To know. And does it and and because in the in the Obama case, it seems like David, you're uh, you're making there's a like a little whiff of judgment of fact, of the fact that they are out of sync.
1: Yeah, that's I, right. You heard, <laughs> you heard the <laughs> which is totally wrong, right? It's totally wrong. It's not fair. But you, you read it correctly, John. Also, where <laughs> yeah. were
2: the kids? The kids were also strangely absent from this whole narrative, which was yeah, but, one of the reasons I didn't think it was every night.
0: Um, uh, wait, can we? I don't know. Wouldn't teenage kids be absent from the parent? Like, whatever, they don't want to be with their parents. You, Let's set up a survey. We're going
1: to do a yourself? survey. Let's do a survey. Put on Facebook if you go to bed at the same time as your couple if you're in a couple and or if you're in time. the anyway. same
2: space as your children in the evening if they're teenagers no they are probably not talking to you the entire time but they are they like in your in your sight
1: and where is where is uh, the, uh, the the mother-in-law <laughs> and where's the dog good question the dog why is I the bet dog the, you got to imagine the dog but with that them you that would night. have been like a very oh why God, did they have detail that detail? detail yeah
0: exactly no i know okay. i know you know and they i wonder do they walk their dog at the end of the night
1: I don't know. That's a good, maybe the girls have to do that. Jocelyn is sending me like, wrap this up, but I don't want to, but we will wrap it up. Okay.
2: (laughs) Jocelyn's taking pity on our one remaining listener.
1: His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. will always be worth it. Apply today at penfed.org slash savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed.
0: PenFed's got great rates for everyone.
1: And now let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are having a cocktail, perhaps alone in the treaty room at night, in the treaty room of the Dickerson mansion at night, John. What will you be chattering about to uh the person who is or is not with you in that room? To President Grant on the wall. <laughs> yeah.
0: So I have a double-barreled chatter, which is – the first is just The Night Manager, the miniseries with Tom Hiddleston and Hugh Laurie. I'm halfway through watching it, and I I love it. It's great. I almost never get a chance to watch TV, and uh, I'm uh, mid-binge through this and um, really enjoying it. And, uh, and then the second thing is about me, 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 because there's only a month before the book comes out, the Whistle Stop book, August 2nd. It will come out and – those of you in New York City who are near the city winery can come to a live whistle stop with me. Tickets went on sale today at slate.com slash live. Sign up for the show at 730 and I'll um, it'll it'll be a live whistle stop performance of a kind that was immediately intuitively understood by Emily Bazelon, which made me feel great when I gave her <laughs> my uh, pitch for how I was going to do it because Anne was like, huh? <laughs> anyway, so you can Wait, come. I think you
1: talked to me about this, but I – well, I'm not going to be in you town, but I wanted, have a, have I a wanted to have a part in, in it. Yeah, nice I know.
0: Try. Well, you might have a part in the one when we do it on, in, in town whenever that is in Washington. Better, there are going to be others in um, – Better let me have a part. Yeah, well, this the New York one is the first one. There will be others in other cities depending, A, on interest and B, on – Travel and that kind of thing, but um, yeah, and then we're going to find a way to do one where you guys uh, uh, play a role. I really want to find you a role for you to play in the inquiry into the Mulligan letters, um, <laughs> which is my favorite little <laughs> drama um, about uh, James Blaine and uh, and Mr. Mulligan. But anyway, New York, I hope to see you there. All of you who have pre-ordered the book, or those of you who are now inspired to pre-order the book, or those who just want to get the book when they come to the show. Emily, what's your chatter?
2: My chatter is about a book that I have been dying to recommend since I read it a couple of months ago and it is now um, about to be published. It's called Break in Case of Emergency. It's by our wonderful slate colleague, Jessica Winter. It is like the female foundation version of the tv show silicon valley a totally hilarious par- parody of the world of foundations and nonprofits which women dominate um but not necessarily to anyone's good including their own it's a uh, a world that um has a lot of celebrity bullshit in it which jessica just does an expert job of dissecting and it also has a very winning character at the center um the main character is working at a kind of phony foundation but she's a real person herself i just think this book it's so much fun to read such a good beach read um has something to say but is also just light and biting and funny so, um, again, it's called Break in Case of Emergency by Jessica Winter. And you can order it now on Amazon. I think it will appear next week.
1: It is awesome. She Jessica can just, she can write her ass off. Really, the right? The are incredible.
2: Yes. She really brings
0: it. It's super fun.
1: Well, if we talk about log rolling, it would triple book log rolling. Today, we could like a, get a cabin out of all of these, <laughs> logs. We, every people are going to have a library by the time they're done. I was today not with log rolling.
2: I did not feel that. I was genuinely well. I'm about an to log roll. Can you Let you me just listeners. kindling
1: or something. Can I? I'm. I have a, a very heartfelt, like needy, a needy uh, chatter today, which is that speaking of books, the Atlas Obscura book is also coming out, and it's called. Atlas Obscura, and Explorer's Guide to the World's Hidden Wonders. It is absolutely fantastic. I can say that because I actually had nothing to do with its creation. It predated me in Atlas Obscura. Plus, it it's really a, is very
2: fantastic having— is,
0: a, It's, it's a, fantastic, and I noticed it's number one in whatever category. It's a
1: beautiful book, which is all about the strange and curious and wondrous places in the world, like the Waitomo glowworm caves in New Zealand, which are lit by these luminous worms, or the secret apartment at the top of the Eiffel Tower that you never knew about. I want to beg and urge you to pre-order this book. It will help my life. It will make my life better. And you will get the best present for yourself or for someone else that you can imagine. So if you go to atlasobscura.com book, you can pre-order uh, there and get a beautiful enamel pin or just go to Amazon. The book is only twenty one dollars. It's five hundred pages. It's only one twenty one dollars. And it's just it is it's gonna be the best twenty one dollars you spend this year. So I I would urge I mean, you. I mean you may
0: spend twenty one dollars on another book that might feel equally you had powerful. your chance. <laughs> you had your chance. I No, no, it works perfectly. I'm in August, you're in September. Like yeah. go order this book go pre order all, all these
1: the books. Yeah.
2: club. Yes. Why Jessica Doma. can be yeah. July. Good idea.
1: Okay. So thanks for listening to the show this week. Can we urge you to please leave a comment in iTunes and a rating if you haven't? It really helps the show. You, you've listened this far. It means you, you are a fan. You probably have a strong opinion. Comments signal to iTunes that, hey, this is a show that you're interested in. You know, sometimes it's a flashy new show that so gets lots of comments. But we'd love for your comments about the GabFest to be there. And it, it would really help us if you, if you leave a comment in the iTunes store about the GabFest. So you can go to, uh, you can go subscribe there and search for Slate Political GabFest in the iTunes store and leave that comment and rating. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Liktai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. Check out the entire roster of Panoply Shows at iTunes.com slash panoply Our show page is Slate.com slash Gabfest. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash Gabfest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabfest. And our email address is Gabfest at Slate.com. For Emily bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will see many of you in Washington at our live show at the Warner Theater next week, slate.com slash live to get tickets. There's still some available. Hope to see you there.